Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and we have the coolest guest today, you guys. I have Judy Stella, who is our head of standards and research at Good Dog, and we also have Meredith Mapes, and Meredith lives in Wasilla, Alaska. She breeds sled dogs and has competed in the Iditarod. So this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> so welcome, Meredith. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So tell us how you got started. I mean, you live in Alaska, but still, <laughs> how'd you get started yeah. in breeding and competing with sled dogs? So contrary to popular belief, most Alaskans don't actually run sled dogs. <laughs> it is still a rare thing to do up here. So when I got into it, I was six years old and my mom was at a Girl Scout meeting where one of the other Girl Scout leaders stood up and said if anybody had any girls that were really interested in dogs, they should go talk to her. So my mom went and talked to her. Her name was Bev and I started out running her dogs when I was six years old. When I was six and seven, her daughter was training for the junior I did a rod, and so I went on a few training runs with her, and I ran my first sled dog races the couple of years, too, when I was six, and I actually won the first race I ever ran, so. Oh, my gosh. Was six it, years old? Yeah. <laughs> six years old, yeah. Oh, so amazing. Dog races. It was literally me and one dog and, like, 20 yards of mushing, but I won it, so. Okay, but I'm saying you're, like, all of 12 today, so how long ago yeah, was this? Right. <laughs> I've been mushing for 21 years now. I'm 27. Oh, my. Alaska is definitely kind to you. <laughs> it is. It is. And so you win your first race at six, you're bitten by the bug, and off you go. Pretty much, yeah. I was 12 when I got my first sled dogs. One of my mom's coworkers was getting ready to run the Iditarod. He was trying to do some qualifiers. And then he wound up getting a divorce from his wife instead. And so he didn't do any of that. And he gave me my first two sled dogs. Their names were Captain and Flint. And they're actually related to a lot of the dogs that I have now in my kennel, which is pretty exciting. They came from the same kennel that many of my dogs do now. And they were two of the best lead dogs that I've ever run. They were amazing. They taught me so much. And he gave me a whole bunch of gear, like harnesses and lines and a couple mm -hmm. sleds. And those are the gear that I used for the first 10 years that I was running sled dogs. And it just kind of all snowballed from there. The next year, I got two more dogs. So when I was 13, I had four dogs of my own. And then the next year, I got one more dog in the winter and then seven more dogs in the summer. <laughs> so suddenly, I had a whole team of dogs. A whole team. So talk yeah. to us about this. So sled dog racing is... As you say, even in Alaska, not common. And mm -hmm. here in the lower 48, people are like, hey. you know, we watched that 30-second clip on the Iditarod. That's what we know. <laughs> so talk to us. How many dogs do you run on a team? What is a lead dog and why is it important? Wheel dogs. Give us a little bit of a cover on this whole topic. 
So dog mushing, you can actually run any number of dogs. There are plenty of people that do just recreational mushing where they take one, two, three, ten dogs out and go for as long as they want to or as short as they want to. And that's one of the things that I love about dog mushing is that anybody that really wants to get into the sport can do it. There's clubs all across the country, all across the world that can help people get started. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the Alaskan Huskies, the dogs like I run. You can run with your lab or your German Shepherd or your poodle. Whatever you want to do, you can go out and train them how to pull in a harness. It's not that difficult, especially if they have that drive to work like a lot of the hunting breeds and working breeds do. So like what I do, I do mid-distance and long-distance racing. So I'm generally, when I'm training, I'm running between 10 and 16 dogs in a team. And then in racing, races are usually between 12 and 16 dogs in a race. Okay, excellent. And I know I am that person. I know this much enough to be dangerous. (laughs) A dog and a wheel dog. And that's like what I know. (laughs) Yeah. And they have different jobs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very different jobs. And most of my dogs are trained to run anywhere in the team so I can move them from spot to spot. But some people have dogs that just run in their one position and some dogs run better in just their one position too. And sometimes that's the lead dogs and sometimes that's not the lead dogs. So obviously the lead dogs are the most important. Those are the ones that get talked about the most. They're the ones that mushers tend to have more of a connection with because you are relying on them to pick the right trail when you don't know where to tell them where to go. That's especially important in like storms and things out on a race like the Iditarod where you may not see the trail. There might be trail markers, but they might be blown over. They could have been run over by snow machines the last two days. And so there might not be a trail and you have to rely on your dog to just sniff out sense where the trail was two days ago and lead your team over it. And I have a lot of trust, man. That's a lot of trust. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I have an absolutely fantastic lead dog that this year on the Iditarod, I actually scratched in Unilocleat, which is the first checkpoint on the coast because I got really sick. I had an upper respiratory infection. And between Old Woman Cabin and Unilocleat, there was a big storm that came up and I could barely keep my eyes open because the snow was blowing so hard and the trail was all blown in and I had no idea where we were. I could occasionally see markers and like tell them that, yeah, they were on the right trail. But my little fantastic lead dog, Sarah Jane, I put her up there in single lead and she led us in all the way with her head down, just plowing right into this giant blowing windstorm and it was incredible to watch okay i have goosebumps now i'm just I'm just like full <laughs> I'm out crying if you have noticed the change in my yeah, voice because yeah, i I'm love crying. you so much with you. that is amazing <laughs> and so then the job of the wheel dog so you've got your lead dog up there that's mm-hmm. the trust factor and the really confident so what's your wheel dog doing during this time So the wheel dogs are the ones that are closest to the sled, and they're usually your biggest and strongest dogs because they're the ones at the back that are pulling the most weight of the sled. And their main job is to help you steer the sled. So on like a tight corner, you have the pair of wheel dogs. If you're making a sharp left turn, the left wheel dog might actually jump over the main line, the gang line, and help pull your sled around that corner a little bit wider. And then once you're around the corner, ideally, they'll jump back over the line and get back in their position. And I've had several wheel dogs like that over the years, too. They're absolutely amazing to watch, too. Not quite as awesome as lead dogs, but still impressive when they know their job that well. And I love the intricacies of it. And I think every time we learn something about a new event, a new sport, a new whatever, 
those details are so fabulous. Just the mm-hmm. knowledge and the living history that our dogs represent. So yeah. Alaskan Huskies that most people run in sled dog teams in the Iditarod. Yes. Yes. This is not what we would think of technically as a breed. Is that correct? It's more of a land race. Yeah. So for years, the mushers have said that the sled dogs aren't a breed. They're just their own type of dog. They're bred for what they do and not for what they look like. So they're not registrable with any of the registries like AKC or anything like that. But a few years ago, Cornell did a study that they were trying to find the genetic markers of the sled dogs. And it was actually headed by a former dog musher, Dr. Heather Husin, if I say her name right, I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, who was a dog musher. So she's very interested in studying the sled dogs herself. And so she headed this study that I think they cheek swabbed like seven different kennels from both sprint and distance mushing. And they actually pinpointed the markers, the genetic markers that separate the sled dogs from the other northern breed dogs. And they actually found out that the sled dogs are genetically more distinct from the Alaskan Malamutes and the Siberian Huskies than even the Malamutes and Siberian Huskies are from each other. So they are a very genetically distinct breed, even though physically they look like your average backyard mutt. Right. But I think that's fascinating. I remember seeing that it was published in like National (laughs) Geographic or something, and I read bits and Mm -hmm. pieces of it. And I think that that's absolutely fascinating. And so talk a little bit about breeding this land race, this type of dog, because you're not breeding it to make it the prettiest dog. You're breeding it to make it the smartest, the toughest, the most fit for its environment. Yeah, exactly. So dog mushers generally have the same general goals when they're breeding. 99% of the time they're breeding their best dogs, their best dogs to hopefully produce more of the best dogs. They're usually breeding those that are faster, smarter, really tough feet is important Mm -hmm. because when you're Mm -hmm. running a race like the Iditarod, it's a thousand miles. That's like a million footsteps or more for each Mm -hmm. dog. So they have to have really tough feet to be able to withstand that. For distance mushing, they have to have a really good coat. So they're not super fluffy, but they're fluffy enough that they can stay warm out there if it's 20, 30, 40 below zero. And of course, we have dog coats and stuff we can put on them. But they really don't need things like that, ideally. Sprint mushing is different. Their dogs are actually bred to have a little bit of a shorter coat because they're running at faster speeds and running a lot harder. So they don't want their dogs to overheat if it is too warm out there. So good coat, tough feet. And then they have to really have a really tough head, too, to run races like the Iditarod or the top sprint races like the Open World Championships and Open North American Championships. They have to withstand three days of racing 30 plus miles at 20 miles an hour for the sprint mushers or the Iditarod is up to two weeks of Mm -hmm. slogging along on the Iditarod trail. And the dogs have to be mentally tough enough to do that as well, because if they don't want to go, they're not going to go. They're going to lay down. And that happens, too. There's mushers whose dogs do just lay down on them out there on the trail. And you can't go if your dogs don't want to go. Right. I would think that that drive would have to be one of your most important principles when you're breeding. Like, I've got to have. And then are you able, I mean, I breed hunting dogs. So thinking about drive versus biddability and finding Mm -hmm. that, you know, when I'm saying that tipping point where that dog is going to have the drive, but is going to be willing 
Mm-hmm, for sure. And I think that's a big part about the Alaskan Huskies in particular as sled dogs, that they have the bitability that some of the other sled dog breeds don't have. I've worked with Siberians and Malamutes before, not as sled dogs, but just as dogs that I'm dog sitting mm-hmm. or fostering for local mm-hmm. rescues. And they have the drive to run, but they don't have a lot of the bitability. They're much more independent. And mm-hmm. so those dogs, I don't trust off a leash. But with my dogs, they're very much wanting to please their musher and work for them. And so I go hiking with a lot of my dogs off leash all the time. And I start that when they're puppies so that they're used to coming back to me, sticking with me and things like that when we're out walking. But you can do that with a Siberian Husky. And even as an adult, they're not going to come back to you because they just have that extreme drive to run without the bitability. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I've been around a lot of Siberians. There's a great deal of big middle paw going on mm-hmm. with the Siberian. Yep. <laughs> For sure. And of course, there's outliers. There's a lot sure, of sled sure. dog Always. that use Siberians mm-hmm. that have fantastic dogs, and I don't fault them at all. It's just not the dog for me. I don't like them a lot. (laughs) Interesting. Absolutely interesting. So here's another question for you. And again, you know, you live in Alaska. You're accustomed to cold weather. Your dogs are accustomed to cold weather. Many of us down here in the lower 48 don't have the foggiest notion what 25 below actually looks like. And (laughs) and so thank you. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah. So talk to me about how these dogs are managed, how these dogs are kept. I mean, these are high energy, high drive, go, 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 go kind of dogs. So how do you manage what has to be a kennel of what? How many dogs do you have? 25, 30? I have about 40 right now, including puppies. Yeah. So a big part of it is making sure that they get their daily exercise and or mental stimulation. Mm -hmm. They're not running every day, but they do need something to do every day because they do have that extreme drive to work. Right. So with my dogs, we do a lot of the off-leash hiking. I live near a lake, so I'll walk some of them down to the lake in the summertime. They also get daily mental stimulation in the form of toys or playtime with each other. I have a little free-run pen that I'll put Mm -hmm. three or four dogs in to go play together. You can't really put more than that unless they're supervised constantly because they do get that kind of pack mentality where they will Mm -hmm. pick on the weakest link sometimes. And sometimes they'll do that even if their musher is there. A couple of years ago, I had a deaf dog and she would get picked yeah. on by a lot of the dogs. So I had to find the particular group that she could work with and play with and be happy mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And then they do get time. So most mushers keep their dogs on chains because that's mm-hmm. the easiest way to contain them with their extreme drive to run in a pen. I have watched one of my main lead dogs clear a six foot fence in one leap. And that was less than two years after he'd broken all four metatarsals in his foot. So it was quite impressive. (laughs) He did not want to stay in his pen that day. And he said, no, I'm going for a run. He had a broken foot, so he could not go for the run. But it was very sad. Sled dogs, they love to run. They don't like to stay in pens. So the chains are the safest thing for them. With my yard, my dogs are designed so that their chains can reach each other and they can play with their two neighbors on either side but they can't get in a fight. They can't do any serious damage. They can't tangle up. Exactly. And sometimes they don't like their neighbors either. So I'll have to move them around and find who gets along the best and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. With both the males and the females, I have my yard separated. So that males are on one side, females are on the other side. 
And sometimes the females can be true bitches and try to fight with each other. And sometimes the males can be typical boys and try to fight with each other as mm-hmm. well. So you got to find the right niche for everybody so that they can actually play with their neighbors and have fun and not be super stressed out all the time. And then, of course, especially during the winter time, we're going on runs at least three or four times every week just for training, getting them conditioned for races, as well as training them what to expect in a race camping trips and things like that for when we're getting ready for mid-distance and distance races. Mm-hmm. And in the summertime, a lot of dog mushers usually send their dogs off to go do tours. So for the last three or four years, most of my dogs, not all of them, but most of them have gone with another musher's dogs down to Juneau and they've run tours up on a glacier down there. Of course, this year we couldn't do that because of COVID. There were no tours. So yeah, it was really odd actually having all my dogs home all summer this year, but Mm -hmm. it was nice because then I got to be with all of them too. Right. And so I am assuming that your 40 Alaskan Huskies don't sleep on the bed and the couch in the house. So Not all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So they get some house time, but generally Mm -hmm. they hang out outside, right? They do. And a large part of that, especially in the wintertime, is that they need to grow the thick coat that they need to stay warm. If they're in the house all the time and it's 66 degrees in my house, they're going to be used to 66 degrees. And then I ask them to go out on a sled dog race like the Iditarod where we can see 40, 50 below zero. And they're going to get cold because they're not used to it. Their fur isn't grown thick enough. So they do have to spend a majority of their time outside. Some of my dogs would disagree. They would prefer to stay in the house all the time, but I rotate through my house dogs. So usually I have one or two sled dogs in the house every day and everybody else is outside. They've each got their own little house in their chain spot as well that is full of thick straw all the time. So they're very well insulated and perfectly comfortable outside, even if it does get to 30 or 40 below, which is very rare in my area. We see some temps below zero, but rarely that cold. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, again, it's so important to admire, to literally just be in awe of what those dogs are capable of doing and happily with zero ill effect. For sure. For sure. They're some of the healthiest dogs on the planet, mm-hmm. especially because they're bred for what they do and not for what they look like. So for the last hundred years, they've been bred best racing dog to best racing dog. And if a racing dog had some sort of health defect, then they weren't bred because they weren't the best dog on the team. So there's very few genetic health problems with them, which is very nice. There's only a few and they're easily testable. And they're just really nice, easy dogs to work with. I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but I'm curious. (laughs) Is this a breed you recommend to people as just a pet, as a companion? Yes and no. It's kind of like the Belgian Malinois. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. wants the pretty blue-eyed husky. Everybody wants the fancy Malinois police dog. And not everybody is cut out for that. Plenty of people are, of course, but maybe not your average pet owner with two or three little kids and not a whole lot of time to spend training their dog because they do need a lot of training and a lot of mental stimulation to keep them happy. So training sessions and playing with toys and flirt pole and running every day, like these are the things that they need and not a lot of people are cut out for that. But if you want to go out and have a ski during companion, a bike during mm-hmm. companion, a mm-hmm. hiking companion, I will happily sell you a sled dog puppy just to be your active companion. Mm-hmm. As long as you understand that 
they need that exercise every day. And probably that four foot fence isn't going to do diddly. (laughs) Yeah, no, not a bit. (laughs) At least a six foot, sometimes more. Judy, did you have something you wanted to add? I'm curious what you feed them and what the calorie intake is to keep up the energy level and just the thermoregulate. I'm just super curious about how much they must consume. That's a fabulous question. This is one of my favorite questions. Yeah. (laughs) So I worked as a sled dog tour guide for like nine years and I love answering this question. So in the Iditarod, which is the easiest one to talk about because we actually have the data, they've studied how many calories they're burning every day during the race. And that study was like 10, 15 years ago. It was a while ago. But we know that the Iditarod sled dogs are burning between 10 and 15,000 calories every day. And we're talking kilocalories as well, the way that we use the lay word calorie. It's not just the little C calorie. It's the big C calorie. So like an average human is supposed to get 2,000 kcals every day for their daily energy requirements. And the sled dogs require 15,000 calories a day during the race like the Iditarod. So the base of their diet is a high quality dog food. Personally, I feed Red Paw 32K. It is wonderful. It's one of the best foods I've ever found to feed them. And it's specifically designed for the racing sled dogs to be very calorically dense. There's a lot of calories packed into each one of the kibbles. And there's other sled dog kibbles like that as well. Caribou Creek, Dr. Tim's, even Purina Pro Plan. They all have those kind of sport high calorie foods. And those are all great foods to feed sled dogs. And then what actually makes up a majority of their diet is raw properly balanced raw diet, because even if you were trying to feed just a kibble diet all the time, there's not enough calories in those kibbles to be able to get them into the dogs. So during the Iditarod, almost 50% of their calories are coming from fat, actually raw beef or pork fat, usually, or chicken skins. So like 50% of the food that they're consuming is just pure fat, because that is very calorically dense. And then they get, of course, meat. Usually I feed beef because the dogs like it. It's very palatable. A lot of people feed chicken, but my dogs personally don't like the ground chicken. (laughs) They're not very big fans of it. So I feed mostly beef. And then we get stuff donated as well. So sometimes like local moose meat, caribou meat, salmon, things like that, that are not too difficult to get your hands on up here. If it's Mm -hmm. gone bad in somebody's freezer or something like that, the dogs don't care that it's frozen and then thawed and then frozen again, they'll still eat it quite happily. And I think that's fascinating because when you look at the native people in Alaska and some of the super cold areas that live on, you know, whale blubber and Mm -hmm. see, you know, that kind of thing, it's the same basic concept, right? It is exactly. The high fat diet is needed up here because we're burning so many calories, just trying to stay warm to begin with. And then actually doing that much exercise every day. They actually did a study on the Iditarod mushers as well. And as people, they were burning between five and 6,000 calories every day on the race. So a lot of mushers eat that high fat diet Mm -hmm. as well. Lots of butter and gross things like that. I don't like butter. (laughs) I love butter. What are you talking about? (laughs) That is so interesting. And it just goes to show that you have to fit the diet to the dog and the task because those kibbles, those diets are high in green. I mean, they're high in, mm-hmm. cal- in carbohydrates because they have to be because that's where they're getting mm-hmm. the energy from. 
So again, it just goes to show that like carbohydrates aren't necessarily bad. It just depends on what you're doing with them. Yeah. And they've studied the sled dogs eating carbs as well. And actually they get less of their calories from the carbs. So that's another reason that it's important to feed the raw diet as well. And actually on a race like the Iditarod, the sled dogs metabolism switches about two to 300 miles into the race. And they actually start burning straight body fat without converting it into glucose first, like we do as humans. And so the military has tried studying this to figure out how to get people to do that, because it would be huge for like a super soldier to be able to just burn fat instead of having to convert it to glucose first. Excuse me, can, so I, can I get signed up for that? <laughs> Yeah, right. Just saying, run the Iditarod, because when I finished in 2018, I lost, I don't know how much, but it was close to 20 pounds in oh 14 God. days. Oh <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I need to lose that much weight that badly <laughs> to, no. no yeah, I, it's not super healthy. I want the pill. I just want the, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah the magical Can I have the sled dog pill, pill please? Yes. I love it. Okay. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just always love, I have my own little niche stuff. So learning about other people's niche stuff is like the coolest thing to me in the world. Judy, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Just, are you running the Iditarod this year? Are you guys training for it? Or I'm think, not. They, I wish I was. It's no. very expensive though. So I've run it twice now. I ran in 2018 and I finished in 49th place. And then I ran last year in 2020 and I scratched in Uniloquite. And I'm still like $12,000 in debt from those two races. Oh, so gosh. trying to pay off credit cards and stay on top of me. So this year I'm just running some smaller mid-distance races. I'm planning to do some like 100s and 200s if any of them happen. That's a big thing is with weather and COVID, a lot of races are getting canceled or postponed or changed this year. So it's going to be an odd year for dog mushing. And then in a couple of years, it's actually my dream to travel down to the lower 48 with my race dogs, like 20 dogs, and run some of the races down there because it's very different from what we have up here in Alaska. It's a very different culture, just different types of races that they do down there. Mm -hmm. And I've only raced up here for the last 21 years. So I want to see what it's like down in Michigan and Montana and Wyoming and see how they do things down there too. Nice. Well, if you get down here, let us know. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. We could have like a GoPro or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. All right. Well, Meredith, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and I love learning new stuff. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thank you. I love sharing. As I said, I worked as a sled dog tour guide for like nine years. So getting to answer questions and just talk about sled dogs makes me very happy. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is G-O-O-D-D-O-G dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.